I'm happy to be introducing tonight's moderator, Mr. Bob Sipchin. Bob Sipchin is editor-in-chief of Sierra Magazine and director of communications for the Sierra Club. Before joining Sierra Club, he worked at the Los Angeles Times, where he edited the opinion section, led the team that created the outdoors section, wrote an education column, and shared in two Pulitzer Prizes. He is the author of Baby Insane and the Buddha, a book about street gangs, and is an adjunct professor at Occidental College. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Bob Sipchin. I'd like to introduce the uh, three distinguished panelists tonight. Nalini Nadkarni is known as the Queen of the Forest Canopy. She's a professor at the Evergreen State College in Washington. Since 1984, she's carried out forest canopy research on four continents, mainly in Costa Rica and in Washington State, supported by the National Science Foundation and the National Geographic Society. In 1994, she founded the International Canopy Network to foster communication among canopy researchers, educators, and conservationists. Her work has been highlighted in magazines, television, documentaries, and public forums. David Moss Masamoto is an organic farmer and the author of five books. A third-generation farmer, he grows peaches, nectarines, grapes, and raisins on an organic 80-acre farm in Fres south of Fresno, California. Masamoto is also a columnist for the Fresno Bee. He's won writing awards from the Commonwealth Club, the James Beard Foundation, the National Resources Defense Council, and he is, he has received the Award of Distinction from UC Davis in 2003 and the Central Valley Excellence in Business Award in 2007. He's currently a board member of the James Irvine Foundation and the Public Policy Institute of California. Jennifer Steinkamp, whose dazzling uh, videos you're seeing here, is an internationally exhibiting installation artist who works with new media and video to explore ideas about architectural space motion and perception. She's a professor of design and media arts at UCLA. <coughs> Her work has been exhibited at the Getty, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, the Kemper Museum in Kansas City, the Hirshhorn Museum in Washington, Cleveland's Museum of Contemporary Art, and many more. She holds a Master's of Fine Arts from the Art College of Design in Pasadena. So we've all been talking in the green room and uh, earlier today and I know this is going to be a rollicking conversation, so I'm not going to slow it down. Um, I wanted to start here by asking a question that every journalist wants to ask. And I'm going to, uh, it's the question Barbara Walters notoriously asked uh, <laughs> Catherine Hepburn on a 60 Minutes interview, I think, or on one of her specials. Um, but I actually think I know the answer. Uh, Nalini, if you were a tree, what kind of a tree would you be? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, I think there's a universality about trees that would allow me to be perfectly happy being any kind of a tree. But if there's one type of tree that I feel closest to, I would have to say that it's the strangler fig uh, that I have climbed many, many years. I know it sounds dreadful, but, um, but this particular tree starts its life out on the top of a tree. It grows its roots down to the ground. It starts growing more quickly, and eventually it sort of replaces the host tree. And the strangler can grow for many, many years, 
Uh, it produces fruits that are very important for animals, birds, mammals, and the canopy. So I'd be pretty happy being a strangler fig. Good. And were you going to uh, show us, I, I know you have a presentation here, yes. a little bit of uh, some images. I think we could start by right. looking at those. Well, I was pretty sure that your first question, Ben, was going to be about um, why is it that we all love trees? I mean, that's what brought everybody out tonight. And um, I have to say that my love of trees, my understanding of how important they are, started when I was very small. These are my parents. Um, my dad was a, um, a pharmacologist from India. He came from Bombay. Uh, he, was, uh, he studied drugs for cancer use. Uh, my mother was a Brooklyn Jew. She was an Orthodox Jew of Russian parentage and studied communications. So from my earliest times, um, I sort of had this combination of cultures and ways of approaching the natural world, both from science and communications. And I found myself as a small child wanting to climb trees all the time, which I did. Um, oh, did it go backwards? Oh, did I go backwards? I wanted yeah, to go forward. Sorry. Let's see. Yeah. Um, I did, um, st I have studied trees all over the world, uh, forest canopies, trying to understand the role that canopy-dwelling plants and animals uh, play in, in forest ecosystems around the world. But as I've gotten older, I've also gotten very interested in translating what I have come to understand about forest ecosystems to all manners of people in society. And one of the ways that I've done this is by creating Treetop Barbie. Um, Mattel, when we called them up, uh, was not interested for some reason in Treetop Barbie, but we went ahead and made her anyway. We simply bought uh, Barbies from Goodwills and Value Villages. We had volunteer seamstresses make her little clothes. We bought helmets from, um, uh, from uh, eBay. And most importantly, we made these little booklets that accompanied Treetop Barbie so that she could be, in fact, an ambassador herself uh, to young girls and boys who are interested in Barbie. I've worked considerably with artists, and so I'm really glad to be here at the Getty. Um, one of the things that I've done is to create what I call canopy confluences, where I bring together forest ecologists, artists, poets, musicians, who spend a full week in the forest climbing trees, getting up into the canopy, in order to share the perceptions and understand how we might communicate using both the tools of science and of art. So this is just one example of one of the pieces of art that was created by Bruce Chow, who's the chair of the sculpture and glass blowing um, department at Rhode Island School of Design. And this was his way of conveying forest dynamics. He learned that um, trees and forests are very dynamic, and so this piece of his sort of slowly crumbled uh, within two months, uh, demonstrating the fragility but essential nature of trees and forests. We also brought uh, musicians into the canopy, and let's see, will this work on it? Uh, these musicians went up into the canopy, they learned the canopy, what it was like, and they created their own music. And the one that was really, to me, most important in terms of conveying the canopy to an audience I was very interested in, uh, that is urban youth, was Ch uh, Duke Brady, the rap singer that you see there at the bottom. And here's a little bit of his rap song, Canopy Rap. Are you... Look up, expand your perspective Don't click cut and don't be so selective Just another minute and I will leave you alone Try walking a mile in a different biome I was also interested in religion, the connection between forests and trees and religion. Um, I decided with my Hindu-Jewish background that I needed to study the Old Testament to find out um, 
the use of trees and forests in biblical terms. And so I downloaded those. I found there were 328 references to the words tree and forest in the Old Testament. Being a scientist, of course, I had to classify these, categorize these verses into the different categories you see here. But I was then able to go to synagogues, to churches, and to Buddhist temples to talk about how I learned from their holy scriptures how important trees and forests are uh, in terms of their spiritual and cultural traditions. I think one of the things that I learned most about trees and forests over the years is how they capture our imagination. And one way that they do this, I believe, in addition to the spiritual, the aesthetic, and the recreational connections that we have to them that I just described, um, is the contrast that they present to us as human beings. That is, trees are both very tall and very strong and represent strength to us, and yet they are also very fragile. They also move. And so one of the things that I've been working on is to have trees create art, um, <laughs> to see how they actually move oh, no. through space. And so <laughs> to do this, all you have to do is tie a little paintbrush onto the twigs of a tree, hold up a piece of canvas, uh, and allow the tree to move for two minutes. Uh, what you can then do is simply measure the segments, add them up, multiply out the number of the amount of, of, of length that they've moved over two minutes, multiply that by the number of twigs per branch, the number of branches per tree, and the number of minutes per year. And it turns out that a single tree seemingly standing in place actually moves 186,540 miles per year. Wow. <laughs> and so me, this represents something very important. It means that when we look at something that is as staid and as immovable, apparently, as a tree, if we simply looking, look at it from another perspective, we can see that the tree represents something that's extremely mobile, something that can move around the world seven times in one year. The last thing I'll say is that, um, that trees have hidden lives just as we do. And that when we look at the many paintings that are, that are displayed in the photo photography um, exhibit, there was really only one tree that showed its roots to us. And I would just like to remind us that there is more complexity in trees than we might think. That there are worlds below the trees that are exposed above ground. And that means to me that there will be forever mysteries to understand as I come to understand trees with Treetop Barbie, with artists, with people from a spiritual tradition, and with you. Thank you. I think it's really interesting that Nalini talked about trees in motion because that's a lot of what Jennifer does with her work. Um, I, another thing that journalists like to do is start uh, conversations with something really provocative if we could if I could have one of the three panelists sort of be demonized and have everyone start booing right away uh, that would make it livelier. Why are you saying this when it's, I'm going to be up? <laughs> I thought it was going to be Jennifer because I had read that uh, oh God. while this the title of this talk is why we love trees that she actually didn't like trees and it turns out that's not quite true, but you're not a total nature lover, and I just hope you could talk a little bit about how you got into this, focusing a, not all of your work by far, but so much mm -hmm. of your work on trees, uh, given that you are not necessarily a camper. Yeah, I'm, I'm, even though it's a part of my name, yeah. I, <laughs> I, I, yeah, <laughs> I don't know how interesting it is. I, I, yeah. 
I like hotels. It's that simple. <laughs> but it, um, I guess my tree project started with this piece in, um, in Istanbul. It is a cistern. And um, there was, it was um, built a, almost a couple thousand years ago, and it was made out of found parts um, that were put together. And there, there were these Medusa heads. And I'll just play the animation. Um, and I, so I researched the story of Medusa, or, or all, all the various writings on Medusa um, over the past couple thousand years, and um, I decided to make an enchanted forest for her with trees where the branches move like the snakes in her hair. And, yeah. And this, this one I like in particular because it's like a dead tree that's come to back to life. And then um, soon after that show, um, I was asked, I was given two months to make a new exhibition because um, this New York gallery asked me to do a show. And, and um, I decided, well, maybe I can make trees again. And I um, saw a, a dervish perform, performance in Istanbul, and it, so I thought, well, maybe I could make trees that are trying to whirl like dervishes. Uh, I don't know if they really move 150,000 <laughs> miles or whatever. It was feet. 100 uh, miles. It was miles. Oh, my God. Well, maybe they do. I don't know. Um, <laughs> hmm. um, what was I saying? Well, anyway, so these trees are attempting to have a spiritual experience, I guess. Let's see. And then I... Um, I was asked to do a gala at the Hammer Museum, and they were honoring Mike Kelly as one of the artists, and he was my teacher. So I thought I would make trees in honor of Mike. And so um, I had actually made a series of trees in honor of my first grade teacher, because she, um, she singled me out in the course and said I made the best sponge trees in the class. <laughs> so I was trying... I was, Desperately trying to think of a tree that I would want to be like, just in case you asked me that. And so I was thinking, well, okay, a sponge tree maybe then. But <laughs> I don't know. But um, so because I had made a tree series for Mrs. Nerald, then I decided to make one for Mike. Yeah, that's enough. Don't need to do that one. And then um, uh, the trees, most of the trees um, change seasons, so I decided to make this sort of planet... Um, where it, it's, um, it's kind of going through a year in about three minutes. And I called this orbit. And so the trees pass time by changing season, seasons. <laughs> it's funny, the little girl does the same thing as her brother. I guess that's a tree thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And I'll go. And then this guy is up right now in San Diego. So if you, you know, if you drove this far to come here, no, it's, um, it'll, I guess they're going to um, run it until December or January, I think. They just extended it today. So it's in, in the train station in the Mocha in San Diego. And, well, here, I'll show you a couple pictures of that. There's that guy. And, um, 
I'll just play the animation. So I just, um, on the way to San Diego, you pass the Sanofi nuclear <coughs> plant, and um, that, that thing has always bothered me and made me very nervous. And uh, unfortunately, um, Japan has, you know, now had uh, hor horrible, horrible things happen. And it's sort of just, it's like my uncanny timing or something, it's, and it's, it's really dreadful. And this piece was kind of um, came from from that the my fear of nuclear power and weapons and how they're interconnected. And so I was researching that. And in my research, um, I happened upon um, Madame Curie, who actually discovered two elements, uh, radium and polonium, and also received um, Nobel Prizes and was an amazing, incredible person. And I, so I read her biographies and um, her daughter, Eve, um, writes a, about her mom and her love of plants and trees. And um, it's just sort of sprinkled throughout the book. And so I decided to make this homage to um, Marie Curie um, in this space. So sort of my fear kind of turned around in, into this sort of homage to an, an incredible scientist. So that's where I'm going to leave that. Thanks. Good. It's just mesmerizing Thank work. Um, so I think I'd be remiss and probably would be fired from my roles at the Sierra Club if I didn't point out that today happens to be, and it's coincidental I find out, John Muir's birthday. Uh, John Muir, as you all know, was the founder of the Sierra Club and saved a lot of trees in his life. Uh, Moss has saved some trees himself. Um, and when I, read, uh, when I read Moss's work about his farm outside Fresno, as a, I spent most of my life in Southern California here, and people of a certain age have memories of Southern California and the orange groves. And my memories of the orange groves are so rich uh, with running barefoot through the hot soil and tearing up those irrigation ditches to make lakes of our own and float little boats on them and getting in orange fights and dirt clod fights. Um, but also of what came after with the bulldozers and seeing, I, I'm sure many of you who grew up here have seen those huge root balls upturned and baking in the sun after they'd wiped out the orange groves to build houses, which, of course, are also made from wood. Um, and David, tell, uh, you start your book, it's Epithet for a Peach, I believe, mm -hmm. with a really interesting scene of facing the prospect of those bulldozers coming to your orchard. Yeah, to, to preface it, we, we have an 80-acre organic farm south of Fresno, and we have these heirloom peaches that we grow. And these are very special peaches, very special trees, uh, because I planted them with my father. And, and we jokingly talked about um, these, the, the profits we made from these trees would send us to college. Uh, and we, it worked. We all went to college. We, uh, we, went, we didn't go to private college, so they didn't make that much money. Uh, but uh, they did well. So there's always this special place in my, in my family, in our memories of trees, uh, and how they influenced our family. So uh, in, in 1985, we had this old heirloom variety of peaches that was no longer popular in the marketplace because it lacked color and shelf life. Uh, it, it wouldn't stay on a grocer's shelf for two years. All right, so, uh, uh, and uh, 
the brokers were telling me that we needed to get rid of these. And then um, the, a bulldozer came in because my neighbor had the same variety of peaches. Uh, he yanked out and pulled, yanked out all of his trees, and the bulldozer came over to my, my farm, and I just had this crazy moment. Uh, it's sort of like that moment of Tenement Square where that student stops the tank. So I stood in front of this bulldozer and stopped this, and I, and I you know, said, you know, I changed my mind. And then the, I remember the driver leaned over and said, are you sure it's going to cost you a couple hundred dollars more to come back? And I said, no, that's okay. So I, uh, uh, he turned around and left, and I realized, what have I done? Because uh, we were keeping this tree that no one wanted. Uh, and, then, and it ended up sparking me to really, in a way, save these trees and save heirloom varieties. And it just so happened at the same time, there was this whole revolution of food that went on uh, where people were looking for taste and valuing it. And it made me understand that we have this very special connection with trees because we not only enjoy them in, in an artistic, visual way, but we, we gain nourishment from them, you know, physical nourishment but also spiritual nourishment. And I think that's what we're talking a lot about, thinking about trees and art these days. Uh, and, but one of the tensions that always was with that relationship was, and especially in honor of John Mayer's birthday, was this notion of what is nature and what is farming nature. Because farmers manipulate nature. That's what we do. We're, we don't just, you know, we're not hunters and gatherers out there and hoping these peaches grow. We do a lot to, to make them grow that way. So this whole notion of manipulation was always this, this edge that I, I like to think I work on, almost as an artist in that sense, because there's always this tension. Because what is natural and what am I trying to do to manipulate it that way? And an interesting dynamic was, uh, uh, I remember I'm doing some research right now and looking at some other old varieties, and varieties of peaches tended to equate quantity with quality. So a tree that produces more peaches became a, a better tree. And it's sort of the, the laws of economics, so to speak. Uh, but there's so much more beyond economics in farming and working with trees. And so again, there was that tension between the natural world and, and the human world, the manipulation world. And I find it fascinating to be here at the Getty and to be part of this, this tree, the photographic exhibit of trees, and understanding that dynamic tension of, of where art is, and, and sitting next to Jennifer and looking at her art, which in a way is all manipulation of trees. I, I, I'm, I'm curious about that. The, on, on your creative process, are, what are you thinking of as you're manipulating <coughs> this? Hmm. Well, I, I think I'm going for a motion that works, mm -hmm. and... I'm never able, for trees, I'm never able to make a realistic tree because of the limitations of the software. So I, I just end up with kind of what works. I mean, trees, they grow, you know, twist and grow however they, you know. You know, but the fun thing that you have, one of the dynamics of trees, I think we'll all agree, is that they're slow. They, mm -hmm. they grow slow. It's a fun idea, though, because you have long-term relationships with trees. I started thinking about it because someone asked me, do you think of your trees as pets? <laughs> and I thought about that. But one of the dynamics You're probably are their pets. Pets, yeah, that is the truth. The truth. But, you know, pets don't have, usually don't have a long lifespan. Uh, 
where trees actually have a lifespan similar to humans in that sense too. Uh, so that notion of manipulation, again, was this, this dynamic, this tension. I don't know if you found that in some it's, of you. For me, mm-hmm. it's very apparent. I come from the Pacific Northwest, and so you know, we live trees, we live forestry. That's the big deal there, not so much or- orchid- orchidists. And it's really about forestry. And one of the big efforts that... Um, that forest scientists are now trying to work out in Pacific Northwest forests is how to bring characteristics of old growth forests into secondary forests. How do you bring standing snags, for example? How do you bring? How do you make sure that there are enough fallen trees that will provide a place for for as a nurse log for the next generation? Um, how many do you need? What configuration do you need? And the problem for sort of feeling really good about that as a forest scientist is because the generation times of these trees and forests are so long mm. that it's very difficult to come up with an answer mm-hmm. about how many mm. trees, how yeah. should we space them. It takes a very long time. It's almost, we're almost doing it on faith at this point yeah. and just mm-hmm. trusting our best foresters to say, you need three per hectare, you need three down logs per hectare. So um, I think that's one of these conflicts that we have with trees, which is on the one time, you know, we're sort of intimately connected with them in terms of the goods and services that they provide from us to us, for, from oxygen to wood and timber to foods and fruits. But on the other hand, since our our lifetimes are out of sync, um, you know, it makes you wish you were a microbiologist because you know there you can work with lots of generation uh, times sure. really quickly. Yeah. But mm-hmm. with trees, you just have to have this sort of patience, mm. kind that's, of, almost that's, a cosmic patience. That's to great, come because to I've never that. imagined mm. myself wanting to be a microbiologist, yeah. but that was a good scientific <laughs> answer. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> we're going to open it up to questions at the end of the talk here, and one of the things that I thought I would ask the audience is, and, and I mentioned this to Nalini, and she said that she had done the same thing, that uh, she, we're hoping that if you would like, if you're going to ask a question, you might imagine a tree that somehow has been special in your life. You might almost frame a tree from any part of your life that's got some meaning to you and give us in one sentence, we've got to keep it short, why that is and and what that looks like and what type of a tree it is. Um, Because this question of why we love trees is, it it just really resonates, I think. It's... um, I know that children, when they first start drawing, one of the first things they'll draw, if it's not trying to draw a person, it's trying to draw a tree. I remember that I took a sculpture class once, and it was a bad sculpture, but I just, for no reason, welded a tree. It was a tree. And my family's uh, house in San Bernardino a few years ago, where we had 54 olive trees, uh, it got caught up in those San Bernardino fires. And it... The fire swept down from the hills and they burned the house to the ground and they burned my father's library to the ground. And there's a one of the first stories in this book from the Getty exhibit is someone who rushes out in Wellesley, Massachusetts when there's a fire and says, save the tree, forget the house. And we sort of feel the same way, but the one thing that came out of that fire was the tree that I'd sculpted. It was about the only thing that survived. Oh, really? And... I'm just wondering, Jennifer, and I know, Nalini, you've thought about this too, what are the deep psychological roots that, and that's not a pun, you know, (laughs) that make us, give us this deep connection? 
Nalini, you mm-hmm. want to talk? Yeah, well, I think um, in, in almost every cosmology, there are stories about trees. And in, in Norse mythology, there's the mm-hmm. Mund- Axis Mundi, which is this giant ash tree it called Id- Yggdrasil. And it connects the Helgard, which is the bottom part of our world, Midgard, which is where humans live, and then Asgard, which is the sort of the heavens. And so it forms this axis that actually holds together, you know, the, the unit of our lives in a, in a really truly cos- cosmic way. And um, so I think those ideas of the tree being this, this, a- this axis that holds the world together um, we, we see that in many, many religious and spiritual ways. and We celebrate that. There's a holiday called Tub Shavat in, in the Jewish religion, which celebrates the new year for the tree. And um, during that time, uh, we give money to tra- plant trees in Israel and so forth. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's sort of this time of, uh, of celebrating what trees provide. And of course, the, probably the symbol that we are most familiar with um, in, in Judeo-Christian uh, cosmologies and spiritual traditions is the tree of life the tree you know when you open the bible and you see the first well the second verse you learn about two very important trees the tree of life and the tree of knowledge and good of good and evil and so these things just i think keep playing in our minds um i think they give trees give us a sense of home they give us a sense of safety i know even when i'm 300 feet up in a tree as long as I'm tied in and as long as I'm like holding on to the limbs, I feel like completely, perfectly safe, safer than pretty much anywhere on earth. And although not everybody is, you know, sort of attuned to that, I think there's something about being with trees, being in forests. Well, um, I'm glad peaches only grow about 10 feet yes, <laughs> 300 feet's a little high oh for me. I don't. Um, I, I use trees to stand in for figures, I think, and somehow they refer... Um, to being human in a, in a funny way, or or, or um, it, my past work was more about environment and space, and so the tree kind of freed me up and, and let me make objects. It's kind of strange, but so hmm. slightly different yeah. <laughs> approach. Did you have any thought of avoiding trees as subject just because they? I mean. From from the first hmm. paint by numbers kit you get, you're going to be painting a tree, and you've done such incredibly fresh work yeah. with trees. Hmm. Did it scare you at all as a subject, or? Well, it it can be a trap because um, people are attracted to uh, tree imagery, and and so I'm I'm constantly kind of making other things as well. Although I, I really love making trees, um, it, it's just fun. Moss, you uh, have talked about working with the trees and, and labor in the farm. And one of the things that strikes me as interesting about trees is that we do sort of, you know, we love trees, there's no question about that, but it's a bit of a love-hate relationship in some cases. Mm. Um, you probably have spent a lot of time out there with a chainsaw or a handsaw uh, doing that work. Does yeah, I, I think it's a love-hate because I think the trees hate me sometimes. <laughs> Because I can't explain why one year works and the next year doesn't. Mm. Uh, the, the fun dynamic is, at least on our farm, uh, is I do a constant process of rejuvenation. And definitely there are trees that are, it's, it's this balance. They're, they're losing product productivity and they're getting old. And I like to think it's, it's euthanasia. So I, I will just pull, yank out that tree and plant an, another one in its place. Uh, one of the things I discovered, the older trees, I think, deliver better quality peaches. Hmm. 
And I think it has to do with, you know, it gets a 20-year-old root structure. And that's when, and I was reading some of the research of, of Nalini, where it's the root structure that it brings in that mm-hmm. nourishment. And yeah. on an aesthetic level, it's that, and especially as I get older, I like this metaphor too. <laughs> uh, as, as it develops that structure, it could then truly take in the nourishment of the world around it. And I, and I believe that. And it also lends itself to a unique nature about trees. Because trees grow, grow so slow, you have to think of them in terms of generations. So if you plant a tree now, you're really thinking of it that maybe your children will see this tree. And when we plant a new orchard now, uh, a peach orchard, you plant it, it's about three to five years before you get the first crop off. And if I'm using my 20-year theory, really, this is planting it for my daughter who wants to take over the farm. And, and, and it's that kind of continuity that historically has always been part of our landscape. Because people tended to move to a new house and they planted a tree. And it was a tree there, and then when they became parents, the children played on the tree, and then grandparents. Uh, uh, today's mobile society is very different, though. Mm-hmm. But maybe not with, with virtual technology and, and Jennifer's art, that there is that notion of, yeah. of, of a... Uh, portable tree, much more than we ever anticipated. Oh, I know. I don't want to replace any trees, that's for sure. <laughs> Bob, what oh, was God. your first memory of a tree? <laughs> My first memory of a tree? Um, well, boy, I think it would have to be in this acre of land we grew up with, 54 olive trees in, in San mm. Bernardino. Uh, Did you ever harvest the climbing, olives? We harvested the olives and, and mm. cured them and ate them, and my kids all still love olives. Uh, but I was going to ask you because uh, it's one of the things that I, the thing I most remember about that, and it's a very tactile and uh, total sensory experience, was climbing trees. And you'd said that I think that the image you liked best from this exhibit, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the ones you liked best was of the tree house. Oh, yeah. And, and, and it's that proximity of the house and the mm-hmm. tree. And, I, and for those of you who haven't seen it, I don't know if that image is showing, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's the a house and the tree are, no, are one. Right. They're connected. Uh, oh, I can't. Okay. And, I don't know. and the image that I love about that, or the dynamic that I love about that's it's that it. image, uh, is they're, it, they're not separated. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think as far as us farming, I don't separate my work world from my family world from my private world. They're all one. Now, the problem is you never escape that world too. It's always with you and, and, my, and, my, and my wife and children sometimes wish to escape mm-hmm. at times. Uh, but but that, that, that unity I think is very, very strong. And I think that's why through all of our work and through I think most of you here, uh, you understand that dynamic of, of, that, of trees being part of your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And one of the things that environmentalists worry about is something we call nature deficit disorder, which mm-hmm. is children just really don't have much contact with the natural world. Um, mm-hmm. And again, that climbing uh, experience, I think, is very primal. And I wanted to ask Nalini, there's an incredible video. You should uh, watch uh, some of the videos she's done for the TED series, but also there's an incredible uh, National Geographic video that shows Nalini climbing one of these 200-foot-tall mm-hmm. strangler figs, and it's just remarkable, but, you know, it makes me wonder, this is, I, I saw the picture of you as a girl, do you have that childhood memory of oh, being yeah, out there? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I have that grown-up memory because I'm still well, a grown-up, right. so I'm still doing it. 
Um, but there is something magical about it. the way I climb it. There are many ways of climbing trees. Obviously, there's you know the old childhood way of just scrambling up a tree. Uh, what I do most of the time when I get into the canopy is to shoot a line up into the canopy uh, with a what I call a master caster, which is a powerful slingshot mounted on a metal rod, and under that there's a um, a fishing reel. So I can shoot it up and over the branch, and then I tie a climbing rope on to that, and then pull that up and over tie one end of the rope off, yeah. and then simply climb up the tree with a mountain climbing harness and Jumar ascenders. We also use uh, walkways, we use construction cranes, we use hot air balloons. So they're all the, and the French, of course, were the ones who delivered, you know, who figured out the hot air balloons. But um, it allows people to get up into the canopy uh, really without hurting themselves and, and hurting the tree. And as I mentioned earlier, I think that, very, as you said, primal sense of I'm in the right place when I'm up high, comes to me not only because I'm intellectually connected to what I'm studying in terms of measurements, but there's something else that's going on. And I think that it can be traced actually to our evolution as primates, that when we evolved in Africa, in the African savannas, where there were large areas with a few isolated trees, the safest place to be because of mm. predators there were in the, was in the canopy. And so I think that that's related to, you know, when we go up into a tall building and we go to the, we want to be in the penthouse or when I go to the top of the Space Needle in Seattle, there's the, there are these places where I think humans like to be up high. And um, so I think that climbing trees is, is very much related to that, one of the benefits of, of being with trees. So Jennifer, I think Moss was getting at this. He's sort of a natural troublemaker, I think. Um, yeah, but he was, you're right. he was asking about the, whether what you do, is that enough into itself? Or do you have any hope of using your imagery, your stunning imagery, uh, to connect people back to the actual thing? Um, it... It didn't happen intentionally, but I get a lot of comments like when people see trees moving, then they think of my art. So I think, yeah, it, it, I think it makes people observe the trees, the movement of the trees more. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of that's kind of a great you know residue, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Well, and I would think it, it it breaks down that separation of the natural world and the artistic world, because mm -hmm. people sometimes think that they're separate. And you think? Huh. Well. An example is on, on the farm, there's a sense that either I'm this, you know, throw farmer who doesn't care about making money, or mm -hmm. if I talk about, gee, the struggles that I have and challenges of the economics, that shouldn't be part of farming. And, and mm -hmm. the two have to be connected, mm -hmm. because it's, it's life. It's, it's, yeah. it's just like... Uh, Getting, we get our nourishment from trees, but we're not hunter-gatherers. We, we use a commodity exchange called money to, to get this, uh, or, or, or in a wonderful way, build relationships. And it's that relationships that, that I think are what we're trying to get at. It's one of the, one of the best things that we have, we do is, is long story, but uh, people sometimes adopted one of our trees, and then they mm -hmm. take fruit back to the cities, and they give it away. And this whole culture of giving away fruit that comes from trees has mm -hmm. sort of been lost. So they tell these wonderful stories of giving fruit to somebody and they have no idea of what to say back. <laughs> because they're not, they're not used to that. And they had one story of was this grumpy neighbor, right, that uh, they wanted to give a box of fruit to 
but so they knocked on his door, chickened out, left the fruit on his, on, his, on his front door and ran back and peeked through the house. And he looked out the door, got it, went back inside, and the next day was the first time they said hi. Hmm. Uh, so those are the kind of dynamics of, again, connecting that, that whole uh, a, a, a social relationship with something very tactile and real as in trees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Nice. I can attest to uh, the quality of Moss's jam anyway. His peach jam <laughs> is awesome. I've tried that. See, I was going to bring samples oh. for everyone. <laughs> yeah. But I saw, the free... sign, yeah. I saw the sign that said, no food allowed in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And he had, he may be the only one here, I'm sure he's the only one on this panel who has had Martha Stewart's uh, uh, approval by putting his recipes on the website, if not in her magazine. Yeah. So. <laughs> it's actually her blessing more than anything. Mm. <laughs> You're right. The topic is why do we love trees? But as we were talking a little bit earlier in the green room, and there is a dark side to trees as well. Um, I say that only partly facetiously. I was on a panel here about a year ago about the uh, artist uh, photographer Carlton Watkins, and he did a lot of uh, tree images. And one of the panelists there had just written a book about the very bad, you know, few people knew about this, but about the lynching history. And he had gone and found every lynching tree in California and had images of those trees. Um, Nalini, you were talking about some of the yeah. dark imagery around right. trees. It definitely abounds. I mean, first of all, just the, the timber that comes from trees makes things like caskets and gallows and uh, you know all kinds of things that we associate with death. Um, when we go to a graveyard, very often there are these tall trees that have been left in the graveyard uh, so I think they are, they can be very much associated w- with death, um, which is something that human beings don't mm-hmm. normally uh, like to think about all that much. Um, trees, because they're big and strong and they are subject to windstorms, can, you know, knock over a car, can kill people, can hurt people. So, uh, so there's that sort of negative connotation. And actually, my, I think I was telling you, my students and I once did a survey a few years ago of real estate agents. And what we wanted to do was to prove the, the value, the high economic value of trees by sending out a survey to a real estate agent saying, you know, here's house A and it doesn't have trees around it and here's house B and it does have trees around it. So what's the differential in terms of the economic value? And our expectations were that house B would be much more valuable and we could come up with some positive economic uh, mm-hmm. dollar sign on it. But what we learned actually is it sort of backfired that many of the real estate agencies said, well, actually, people don't want to have trees around their house because of the leaf problem and <laughs> the root problem. And um, mm-hmm. especially older people, and not to laugh at this, but that that is considered <laughs> sort of a, a, a bad thing in terms of what you want to have around your house. So I think you're right, Ben, that some of these assumptions we make about this positive association that we have with trees um, has to be sort of reevaluated in terms of what the actual practical aspects are. And Jennifer, I think you said that you've actually oh. scared someone with trees. Oh, I scared a federal judge with my trees <laughs> <laughs> um, for a public art project. And um, it, 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 it went on for a whole year, and finally it was turned down because the trees were like too scary. The tree that we were playing here, in fact, was too scary, I guess. And, it's peculiar. 
It's for a public art installation? Oh, for a, sorry, for a federal courthouse. Mm. Oh. Um, so the, I guess the judges involved in the courthouse get to choose the artwork. And, wow. uh, what gives them the right? Well, he was, <laughs> I don't know, he was appointed, appointed by George Bush, and, um, and I guess I'm not really done, Republican. You should have done Bushes and, instead yes, of trees. I have, I have, I did make a Bush. I made a George Bush to help him not get reelected. Thank you. <laughs> it was a burning Bush. But, yeah. And... David, uh, you Actually, have... he didn't get reelected. That's true. <laughs> Moss, thank you. Moss, you have uh, written very eloquently about the other side of this, the rejuvenation. I hope everyone who's here had a chance to take a look from some of the decks. This is one of the most beautiful days I've seen in Los Angeles in a really mm. long time. This is a city, thanks to the efforts of people like Andy Lipkiss and Northeast Trees and... I think there's some people doing tree sitting right now in Arcadia, and I remember there's that tree sit uh, in the valley where there was a giant, beautiful oak tree that they were trying to put a road through. I think it, they actually did wind up putting the road mm -hmm. through. Um, but David, you've written about trees as a rejuvenating, uh, the, the mm -hmm. rejuvenating symbolism of the trees and just the spring-like nature. I, I guess my point was it's a beautiful spring day out there if you haven't seen it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think because I live with the trees and I work with the trees, I have a slightly different relationship in that I see, the, we'll say, the dark side. Uh, two, two ideas come to my mind. Uh, Barry Lopez, the, the writer, had this wonderful story he wrote, because Barry did not grow up in, in a farm, but he went to go visit his stepfather, who was a farmer. And when he saw all the trees lined up, he, he had the line that they looked like prisoners in a chain gang hmm. lined up to do work. Hmm. And, I, and that struck me because growing up on a farm, I see things in that pattern. They're linear. I don't see them as prisoners because it's, it's part of that manipulation. So there's a tension there. But the second part is the understanding that the physical work it takes to grow wonderful peaches with these wonderful trees. They don't naturally happen. They naturally could happen, but you have very small peaches. Very, very small peaches. Uh, mm -hmm. So the, the work that you have to do, and that work is the physical labor, the physical toll that it takes on old farmers like my father. Because I could say in many ways the farm killed him. And at the same time, he wouldn't have wanted to die any other way. So there's that tension with that, that sensibility that this involves this hard work and it's a physical labor that you, you put in and you invest in this and you only hope you'll get something out of it. For my dad, of course, he got much out of it because he's like any old farmer. He would go back every winter. The story that I tell is that he loved to prune. And pruning in winter was a sign for him that he would want to see the season all the way through to harvest. And it was his way of, 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 of understanding that seasonality and that life, that cycle of life with that. And the other dynamic for me is, as, as, I, as I age is understanding that I only get one harvest a year. So my wife once asked me, because oh, we're planning, uh, planning uh, a new orchard, and, and 
again, orchards are going to take years to, to happen. And she goes, how many harvests do you have left in you? Oh, God. <laughs> and, and, she, and you have to understand that she's from this, mm-hmm. you know, traditional German side that asks pretty blunt questions. <laughs> and I looked at her and I, and I realized she was exactly right. How many harvests do I have left? Well, I'll stop there. What was the, what was the answer? <laughs> I, I don't know. Huh. I don't know. And it, and it really st- scared me for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, Moss, you've been a very uh, good friend to those trees. Uh, sometimes our species is not terribly good to trees, but I think that uh, the payback is for us uh, is in our own hands here. I mean... Uh, you do a lot of scientific research, and of course the huge benefit of, of trees, in, in especially trees in great quantities, is the carbon capture that mm-hmm. they are performing now for mm-hmm. us. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you sure. found in doing your canopy I work? I think that um, looking at forest canopies and, and carbon is one of the most vibrant parts of forest canopy research and forest ecosystem research for that matter. And I think what people are learning and realizing is that one of the most, um, the easiest thing that we as humans can do is to keep our forests intact in terms of carbon sequestration, in terms of global climate stability. Uh, because trees and forests are these machines, obviously, for picking up carbon dioxide and you know giving off oxygen. And so what I think some of the most exciting work that's going on now is is uh, not so much looking for alternative energy sources of nuclear energy or wind energy or solar energy, but using the basically the solar energy capture mechanisms that have evolved over million, literally millions of years, which are, in fact, trees. Um, so I think some of the greatest work that's going now are uh, looking at mitigation, looking at how we can buy carbon credits for rainforests around the world um, and how we can do that in our own backyard. But, but to understand fully that that trees and forests are sort of our best friends when it comes to, to, uh, to climate change and, and what we need to do to hang on to that carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. You've done, a lot of your work is on uh, nutrients, I think, in the right, canopies. Right, And can you just, for those of you who, for those in the audience who may not know this because it's just so startling, can you talk a little bit about the biodiversity in the canopy itself? Sure. So, um, you know, I think this is, to me, it's one of the things that compelled me to go up into the forest canopy is that 30 years ago, just when I was starting out as a graduate student, really nobody knew what was up in the forest canopy, which just seems utterly almost impossible hmm. now. I mean, you're only going up 100 meters above the forest floor, you're right there, and yet because the forest canopy is subject to much greater amounts of, of sunlight, much greater wind speeds, much greater differentials in, in temperature and relative humidity, it constitutes really a very different microenvironment than what you find on the forest floor. Mm-hmm. And so there are literally thousands of birds, arboreal mammals, and especially insects that live in the forest canopy that you will never encounter if you mm-hmm. just stay along the forest floor. Mm-hmm. And so these thousands of species, we have no idea sort of what they're doing in the ecosystem, uh, what medicines they might provide us with in the future. But that's uh, another area of forest canopy research is trying to just simply document and understand the remarkable biodiversity just 100 feet above, above our heads. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm seeing that we are just about out of time here. Uh, David, do you have any uh, 
last reflections that you'd like to offer the audience on your personal relationship with trees? Well, yeah, I think you, you hit it on the nose when you said personal relationships. And I think we all have these wonderful connections with trees, either through nourishment, the enjoyment, the aesthetic value, or the power of memory. And I think that's the key that we... One of the things that scared me was someone said um, of a younger generation who's never eaten a great peach. And the same could be true of... That's because you hate trees. But that's <laughs> I don't <laughs> hate trees. <laughs> but wow. it, it's this idea of, of, of in or, to save a tree, you have to have this wonderful memory of how those, these trees worked in your life. Uh, and because how can you value something that you've never experienced? So I think that's that power of memory to me is, is the most powerful you know, political, social, economic statement that could be made. Jennifer? And Jennifer does love trees. So I'm <laughs> no, I've had good peaches. <laughs> but it seems, I mean, it seems like you don't get to have as many um, great, pe- you know, great fruits and vegetables as, you know, as I'd like. Because, I mean, you know, the corporate farming, it's sad. But I don't think I'm answering your question, though. Or last reflections. I guess that was well, the last reflection. Okay. That's your last reflection. Yeah. But do you, Very sad. Do you, Think of yourself as a tree hugger. Yeah. I won't admit it. Yeah. No. Nope. <laughs> well, I am. I yeah. I, would de- I get desperately sad if I have to. Um, you know, if oh the trees in my neighborhood, um, they're huge pine trees. They fall over because I think their root systems aren't big enough, and it's it's devastating. Actually, actually. I have a question for Jennifer. Do you see your art evolving? I mean, is oh, it sure. beyond? Yeah. Tre- is there something beyond trees or a, oh, the yeah. bigger tree? Or- well, <laughs> I'm going to do peach trees. <laughs> <laughs> They're not actually... Well, they could be pretty, but... Oh, uh, we'll see. Yeah, yeah. well, I'm, ma- I'm making a, um, a tree inspired by Rodin, actually, because I'm replacing a Rodin sculpture, and, and I decided to put a tree. I, I thought... I didn't know what I was going to do, but I, I did a tree. It's a sort of muscular tree. Yeah. Figurative kind of thing, yeah. yeah. When I asked you about the tree hugger, it reminded me that uh, my former executive editor, or executive director of the Sierra Club, Carl Pope, was on Colbert not too long ago. And Carl, uh, the current executive director is Michael Brune. Carl was a very intellectual guy, very cerebral, and Colbert started asking him about whether he was a tree hugger, and Carl admitted yes, he was, and Colbert went on to ask if he'd ever kissed a tree. <laughs> uh, and Carl said he had, and Colbert asked him if he'd ever French kissed a tree, and it got worse from there. And so, <laughs> Nalini, is there... Uh, I'm glad let's you see, boy, how do, I, how do I follow that? Um, <laughs> I guess, you know, based on what we've talked about, what I, what I see, I really agree with, with Moss that that personal connection can be very important. And I think what leads us then beyond the personal connection or the intellectual connection about trees in terms of trying to save them or help them or conserve them, I think has to come from a a very deep place inside each of us. And I've been really inspired in that, uh, in trying trying to understand where that comes from inside us by a poem um, that was written by an Indian poet named Vijaya Mukhopadhyay. And um, it's called Wanting to Move. And I I love this poem because it's from the standpoint of a tree, 
I know of no mm. other poem that's actually written from the standpoint of a dream. It's not very long, so if it's okay to read it, sure, I'd love to do that. Because I think it, it, it asks us, what is it that makes us want to move? How do we overcome this tree, uh, the, this constraint that trees have? They're rooted mm -hmm. in the ground, they can't move, and yet this tree wants to move. Mm. And so I feel that's it's cool. so inspiring. Continually, a bell rings in my heart. I was supposed to go somewhere, to some other place, tense from the long wait. Where do you go? Will you take me with you on your horses, down the river with the flames of your torches? They burst out laughing. A tree? Wanting to move from place to place? Startled, I looked at myself. A tree wanting to move from place to place? A tree wanting to move? Am I then born here to die here, even die here? Who rings the bell then inside my heart? Who tells me to go inside my heart? Who agitates me continually inside my heart? Hmm. Very nice. So I want to thank the panelists here. Thank you. Uh, thank you. With the cycle of life, trees not only grow, but they die. And in the process of decay, they release the CO2 that we've <coughs> trapped. Ultimately, some of the biggest sources of CO2 release is forest fires. Can you comment on the uh, carbon credits associated with forest fires? I think I would defer to Bellini. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I would defer to you on this. <laughs> Um, there's undoubtedly carbon dioxide that's given out, but some of the most recent work that's been done, especially in old growth forests uh, in the Pacific Northwest in California, has shown that in fact the balance um, is still in the positive form. Um, we get a lot of respiration from microorganisms in the soil, but we also get a lot of, of carbon accrual. Um, it's something that continues to be looked at. Um, a lot of the carbon acquisition, um, and when we think about forest types that are being pointed to as net holder honors to carbon are very young, fast-growing forests, for instance, in New England uh, and forest plantations. So those are definitely, uh, at least in the shorter term, able to take on uh, more carbon dioxide than they're giving out. But I think that, that you know, the word is not out totally in terms of all the different forest types or ages that we've looked at. I loved uh, when you talked at I think it Ted about how you not only bring, um, I think, at-risk youth and others to the forest canopy, but also bringing um, nature into such places as prisons and other institutions where people don't have real access to nature. I wondered if you could speak a little bit about that. Not everybody has access to nature, which I think is a first step in terms of appreciating it and being able to save it or, or conserve it. And so it seemed to me that one place that we need to bring nature to is, in, in, is to incarcerated men and women who don't really have access to, to nature at all. And I just started this out as just a very small project trying to learn how to grow mosses for the horticulture trade so that they wouldn't be harvested as much um, out of the old growth forests of the Pacific Northwest. And it turned out to be a great success. The prisoners loved it because they were getting stimulated intellectually and being connected to the old growth forests. The prison administrators loved it because these men were having different conversations. They weren't just talking about, you know, the, the evil eye that this guard gave them or how many more months they had to get, you know, before they got out. And the scientists loved it because we were getting answers to the scientific questions that we were posing. So after that worked so well, we began starting a project called the Sustainable Prisons Project. 
And right now we are working with six different prisons in Washington State, supported by the Department of Corrections. We have a lecture series in four of these prisons, and we're, we're having the inmates raise endangered species. Um, in one prison we're working with raising the organ-spotted frog. That is, uh, they raise it from eggs to tadpoles to adults, and then release those out to, or to pr protected wetlands. We have another project that's in conjunction with the Nature Conservancy to raise um, 200,000 plugs a year of endangered prairie plants that then get put out for restoration work. And right now we're starting a project with the women's prison uh, raising the Taylor's checker spot butterfly so that these women have the opportunity to sort of raise these eggs to caterpillars and then this transformation of being free out there in terms, well, the butterflies being free out there, um, uh, but getting a sense of connection to being free out there also. But it also mm -hmm. provides job skills and it also provides the sense, which it turns out to be the most important aspect of it, which is that they're connecting to something that's important, to something bigger than themselves, bigger than the prison, mm -hmm. and really as big as the biosphere itself. And they don't really have much in the way of ability to do that in prisons for the most part. And so it's turned out to be, I think, quite a significant project. Mm -hmm. So right now we're trying to raise that to the national level. We're organizing a conference that will bring prisons and prison, prison administrators from other states uh, to Washington State to see how they might go about uh, putting together a program like this for them. I was stuck in a tree uh, during a tornado. And okay. there you go. There's your it came up too fast to climb down. And oh it, um, I heard the words, I will not let you fall. I don't know to this day if I heard them or I felt them, but it was tangible. It was palpable. And it surprised me. <laughs> and I knew that it, I could feel the roots. I, I could feel oh. the swaying and the going over, but I knew that it would not go over. It was just this weird thing that happened. Have you gone back to that tree? No, Since, it was in oh, St. Louis. You, need, <laughs> but, you, go back. you need to thank that tree. I, oh, yes. Cool. I, I have thought of it many, many times. But I wondered, it, I, to this day, I don't know, was it the tree? Was it God? What, you know, have you guys had um, what I would describe as like a mystical experience that surprised you while in amongst the trees that you couldn't explain? <coughs> well, I, I'm just reminded of John Muir's famous story mm, since yeah. it's his birthday of climbing the, to the top, I think it was a spruce tree in the high Sierra during a windstorm, just to feel that motion of the yeah. tree. Uh, but I'd like to know what the panelists is. <laughs> Jennifer scary has to me. not. No, no, no tornadoes, no. Uh, I probably have a fear of heights. Probably the, probably the closest I've had is, uh, a lot of times, I'll be working late, late, late into the night. And, and the sun sets, and I have old farm equipment, so the lights don't work on tractors. Uh, and it's kind of a wonderful feeling, because you feel the darkness start coming in around you as you're driving through uh, an orchard canopy. And then the branches and leaves start stroking you, and at a certain point, you could almost feel them grabbing you. And I'm, and I'm working and trying to think, is this good, or is this... Scary, because uh, there's this wonderful feeling of being enveloped, and also a feeling of being over, totally enveloped, uh, and then that's where too many Twilight Zone old movies <laughs> come into play. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, I find myself just staring at the patterns and the waves yeah. of the trees, and and I mean, it's it's, I suppose that's some kind of spiritual or some you know beyond me experience. Is that where you get some of your emotions in your art? Well, 
I would it's think It's kind so. of in the software, but oh. yeah, it's certainly, yeah. <laughs> that doesn't inspires. quite sound so romantic. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's uh, I would have to say, although I've never heard a tree speak to me that clearly, <laughs> that I have had a sense, especially when I was a kid, that I was safe in the trees, that the trees protected mm. me. I had a sort of a chaotic upbringing with five kids and three dogs and, you know, mother, father, and so forth. So for me, when I went to climb trees, I mean, I took it very seriously that this was a place where I was away mm. from the chaos of home. I felt safe. I felt that the limbs were really holding me up. Um, and I remember about five years ago when I was working with artists at one of these canopy confluences that I mentioned, and one of the women asked me, so, you know, why is it that you're so crazy about trees, Nalini? Why is it that you need to climb these trees? And just what came out of my mouth was, when I was little, they protected me. Mm. And mm. now I'm working to protect them. Mm. And it just sort of popped out of me. And I, I realized, wow, that was a, that was a statement. Um, especially as a scientist, you know, you don't mm -hmm. think about that was really what should come out of your mouth, but it did. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think um, in that moment, it crystallized in me that at least one of the... One of the things that pushes me towards speaking about trees, writing about trees, understanding trees, is about this deal that I made with trees when I was little, even though I didn't know that's what it was, but that they did provide me a sense of safety and refuge, and it seems to me that maybe that's what I, I need to do right now for them. The uh, essential existential question, what kind of tree would you want to be if you were a tree, for me, has to be answered negatively. I would be any kind of tree that was not about to be chopped down. <laughs> <laughs> I guess with that, we'll close the program. Thank you, everyone.